This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Betraying the Nobel, the secrets and corruption behind the Nobel Peace Prize. I couldn't believe, when I was talking to Uni Turatini, who wrote the book Betraying the Nobel, uh, I couldn't believe in how many stories she had about Nobel Peace Prize winners being the, uh, they should be like a Nobel genocide winner in some cases, or Nobel War Prize winners, but there is no Nobel War Prize. So, betraying the Nobel, gets, hold on to your seats because there's a lot of stories that I did not know about some of these Nobel Peace Prize winners. Jay's recommendation. I just started watching the show Ragnarok. I started last night, Jay. Do you, do you like it? Yeah, it's good. The premise is like, you know, the giant, you know, the giant in, in the Norse. Don't tell me anything because I haven't mentioned anything yet. Okay, okay. I'm not going to say anything. I'm only <laughs> okay. on, on like the beginning of episode two. Right. So, yeah. Uni, are you from Norway originally? I am. Yes, I am. I am Norwegian. I lived abroad for uh, for most of my adult life. So more than 20 years, but then... Moved back uh, to Oslo after you know after all that time in yeah almost five years ago. Where do you live when you live twenty years abroad? I lived in the U.S. I lived in France and Switzerland. First off, why did you go from U.S. to France? That seems like a step backwards. No, I'm just <laughs> well, kidding. I was back I'm just and kidding. Forth, actually, a little bit. <laughs> okay. <Good. laughs> I was a little bit back and forth between France and, and the U.S. Uh, the first time I went abroad and lived abroad was was I was an exchange student in in high school. Oh, okay. So I was uh, yeah barely turned seventeen, and uh, they sent me to my program sent me to Kansas City, Kansas. Oh, so it's uh, places. you you really hit the most exciting spot of the U.S. You know, yeah, yeah. I actually always use Kansas City as an example in because I do think. I do think it's probably nice in Kansas City. I've never been there. You could tell me differently, but it seems like a, an, it's the middle of America. Like it's the exact yeah. center of America. And I don't know, it's probably representative of the, the you know, the whole middle America area. Well, what did you think of Kansas City? You know what? I had a really good time. Uh, it's actually, Kansas City is actually a really beautiful city. And people are really friendly and nice. And I had a wonderful host family. So I actually had a really good time. And it was interesting too, because I don't think I would have chosen to go to Kansas City or, you know, in the middle of America. You know, I thought, you know, I kind of was hoping for, you know, dreaming of California and the beaches and the, you know, the the nice weather and the palm trees. But uh, when, I'm actually glad they sent me there because then I really got to live and experience the real, real America, really. The place, you know, the places where people don't usually go to as tourists. You know, I, I was once at this um, business networking dinner and I was sitting next to this guy who had like, you know, he was a tall guy. He was wearing a nice crisp suit. He had a, you know, he was older, but he had a thick head of white hair or white, whitish grayish hair. And he was talking like just such a nice, honest guy. And so smooth. He was like, oh, you should move to Kansas. You can get like an eight-bedroom house for, you know, zero dollars. And and I said to him, you know, you're you're so enthusiastic about Kansas and you seem like a good guy. And you should you should run for governor. And he's like, Well, I am the governor of Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh it's a nice, it's a nice place where just everybody's accessible. So yeah, uh, yeah. And then and then now you're back in, in Norway, though. Is this your home yeah. for life? So now it's, well, I don't know if it's for life. I, I, I don't like to, um, to talk in absolutes. Um, but for now, uh, we're good here. So my husband is Swiss and, and, you know, our kids were born in Switzerland and are half Swiss, half Norwegian. Now, when, when, they, speak when, when they argue with you, are they like totally neutral on everything? Like they have no opinion? 
Because they're Swiss. Oh, no, I mean, they're a very opinions, opinionated. Yeah. <laughs> they probably got that from me. My husband is more diplomatic. Yes, the, like the, the Swiss. The Swiss. <laughs> so, okay, well, you're clearly not diplomatic, by the way, after reading your book, Betraying yeah. the Nobel, uh, The Secrets and Corruption Behind the Nobel Peace Prize. And it's great that you wrote this because I've even been thinking, you know, you hear stories here and there, like, and then you see, oh, this person won the Nobel Peace Prize. And you're like, what? Uh, I'm thinking specifically, I remember reading a few years ago, Barack Obama was hosting this woman who had won the Nobel Peace Prize from Myanmar. And then she's like this genocidal politician. Once she kind of, mm -hmm. after her accolades of winning the Nobel Peace Prize, she ru starts running the country. And it's it's a, literally a shit show there. Like it's sad what's happening there. Yeah. And then you wonder everything, like what is going on with the Peace Prize? Why did the why did the U.S. host her like? And I just didn't want to dive down that rabbit hole because there's no point. But not only did you dive down the rabbit hole with her, but with every it seems yeah. like every single Peace Prize winner, you 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 really took Alfred Nobel's you know last will and testament and what he intended for the Peace Prize and re really like translated it literally to understand who should win and why. But the first thing is, mm. why is there a peace prize? Uh, Alfred no Nobel, Nobel, however you say his name, he created the instruments of war, dynamite. What happened then? It's you know what? It's actually a really um, interesting story. His, he, you know, is fascinating man. This uh, Alfred Nobel who invented dynamite. He passed away in eighteen ninety six. He was sixty three years old. So he, you know, he died. Pretty young. Can I can I ask he a quick question? I, I might interrupt. So dynamite is very volatile. So when you say yeah. he invented dynamite, I can't imagine getting like a bag of very volatile explosives and somehow mm -hmm. baking it into a stick and living. <laughs> yeah. No, so, so what he did, he took nitroglycerin and he basically made it safe enough, enough to be able to use it for infrastructure, you know, building roads and tunnels and and uh, and that sort of thing. So so he didn't, you know, yeah. So it's it's not correct to say that he invented. He he well he renamed you know nitroglycerin after he had made it safe enough, and, he, and he, so he made up the name then, or he called it you know after Dynamis, the 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 Greek god. Uh, he he didn't use a Norse god. That's he didn't use a Norse <laughs> god. No. So so uh, but how did he make it safer? I mean, in order to make it safer. You, you kind of have to handle it, right? Like how come he didn't blow up while figuring this out? Well, he did a lot of time, uh, a lot of time. There were a lot of explosions, um, you know, when he was developing this. And it took, a, you know, it took a few years for him to be able to make it safe enough. And even his younger brother um, died in one of the explosions. And oh that gosh. was really devastating to, to Alfred Nobel. And so then he dies at the age of 63. Did, yeah. did, he, did he start to realize that, hey, People are buying this, but for the wrong reasons. No, so I think what happened was he. Uh, so Alfred Nobel was he ha actually had a lot of different inventions, but he's most famous for dynamite, and he was a brilliant businessman as well. And he created this empire, and he was one of the wealthiest persons at the time. At you know when he was living. And he had all his money, but he his personal life was kind of sad. So he was all alone. He fell in love um, twice in his life. Once when he was was younger, and that woman died, and then, <laughs> and then he fell in love with this other woman. Um, he was, I think, he was around forty three years old, and he hired this he hired this woman called uh, Bertha um, as a personal assistant. Um, but really, he was looking for a wife, and so the personal assistant thing was was kind of an excuse. And Bertha was this um, this intelligent young woman. She was actually working as a as a governess for this rich uh, family, um, you know, basically a nanny for this rich family in in, in Vienna, Austria. And uh, she came from this very noble aristocratic background, but her family didn't have enough money so she had to work for a living so this is why i often call the nobel peace prize it's actually kind of a love love story in my view because um alfred hired her and she was she had actually been sort of forced to apply for the job to be alfred nobel's assistant 
by the, um, the Fudensut nurse. So the family she was working for, the mother, she wanted to send her away because she fell in love with the eldest son in the Fudensutner mm. family. <laughs> so, of course, that didn't go down well with the Fudensutner family. So they sent her away, sent her to work for, for Alfred Nobel. And, um, and he quickly realized that he had fallen in love with her. Uh-oh. And of course, the feelings were not mutual. So she, um, she packed her, 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 her stuff, left, went back to Austria and eloped with the Fundsutner son. And, uh, but she and Alfred actually kept in touch. They remained friends over the years. And Bertha Fundsutner would actually become this front figure for the peace movement in Europe. And she wrote a book that became a bestseller called Lay Down Your Arms. And so before Alfred died, he sent her his last will. And in the last will, of course, he had, um, you know, he, he had, he was spoken, he, he, you know, he had given all his money to these five prices and among them, the peace price. And because of the wording and the, the things that he said in his last will, it was, it's such an obvious declaration of love to Bertha von Sudner. And she did win the Nobel Peace Prize. She was the first woman to to win the prize A- in after his 1905. Death? Oh, after yeah. after his death, yeah, because yes. he died in eighteen ninety six. So so the first yeah. prizes were in nineteen oh five. The first prize was was given in nineteen oh one, and then she won it in nineteen oh five. Because I I remember reading in your book that uh, the the Peace Prize he doesn't specify it doesn't have to be given every year, even though it is given every yeah. year now. But it wasn't yeah. necessarily given every year, I guess, in the beginning. Why, and, and you talk about this in the book, but why Norway when all the other prizes are awarded in Sweden? Yeah, it, you know, um, Alfred Nobel never specified. He never explained to anyone why he gave uh, the Peace Prize to Norway. But um, if we can take an educated guess, just looking at the history at the time, uh, Norway was in union with Sweden when uh, Alfred Nobel died. And after having been passed sort of just given by Denmark to Sweden a hundred years earlier. So Norway basically had not been independent for more than 500 years. And so Norway didn't have its own um, foreign, uh, foreign ministry or foreign policy. And and the you know it had not been a military power since the Vikings, so it's probable that Alfred Nobel saw Norway as this tiny innocent nation on the periphery of Europe, uh, not at all involved in in you know politics and power games, and perhaps he felt that um, the peace prize would be safer given up by the Norwegian government than Sweden. So basically, the, Which, you know, uh, they were all Vikings, right? Norway and Sweden? Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Um, Nobel <laughs> Peace Prize given out by the Vikings. That's, it's a good balance in history. <laughs> why, why does anyone care about the Nobel Prize? Like, how did it, like, if I set up the James Altucher Prize in physics and peace, no one's going to yeah. care. Was it like that much money back then in 1905 that everybody cared or, or, and there was no other prizes like this? Because there are plenty of prizes now for all these different yeah. categories. Back then, it was unusual. Mm-hmm. It was unusual for for someone to give away uh, basically all their money to um, to a cause, and it certainly got a lot of attention in the media, in the press. There were a lot of controversy around it. The Swedish king uh, really opposed and tried to um, to undo the the will, and to especially when it came to the peace prize, to send all that money out outside of Sweden. And um, so it did get a lot of attention. I think also it got a lot of attention because of Alfred Nobel and who he was and because he was, um, in a way, such a celebrity at the time. So he was a celebrity in, in his life. Like everybody knew him as this big yeah. um, industrialist and yes. and well-regarded and so on. And then what's was there ever controversy even in the beginning that, Again, dynamite was used so much for war, and here he is having a peace prize and science prizes yeah. and, and so on. Like, when did that controversy kind of start, or were, were, was there ever a controversy with it? 
Well, a lot of people um, still think today that um, that the, the, the Nobel Prizes were established sort of out of guilt to compensate for dynamite because, of course, dynamite is dangerous and it has been used not only to build roads and, and, and railroads, but um, also, you know, for for terrorism. Um, but what we when we look at the at the history and Alfred Nobel and how proud he was of all of his inventions, including especially dynamite, I should say, and also, um, you know, it's 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 not true that he created this out of guilt. He actually saw dynamite as um, a way to improve life for 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 all of us, for human, you know, for 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 the betterment of the world and for for humans. So he, uh, and also this was confirmed to me by Michael Nobel, who is the great, great, uh, um, what would he be? He yeah, would nephew. be, so he was the <laughs> descendant of uh, one of Alfred Nobel's brothers. Mm. And he's still alive today. And he, and it's interesting. So with the Peace Prize, so now you wrote this book, Betraying the Nobel, and it's all about the Nobel Peace Prize. Why did you decide to focus on the Peace Prize? Because as, as I don't know, I think you've been on Brian Keating's podcast yeah. who wrote Losing the Nobel. There's a lot of controversy around physics, for instance. There's a lot of controversy mm -hmm. around other categories. It's also a controversy around categories that he didn't include. Like why didn't he include mathematics, for instance, or other yeah. sciences? But what, what focused you on the Peace Prize? For me, it, it really was the fact that it's Norway, my home country, that gives out this prize. And, you know, growing up in Norway, I was always extremely proud of the Peace Prize and the fact that my, you know, home country and this tiny country uh, in the world, um, I felt that it, it gave us importance as a country, as a, as a, as a people. And that was also why I was so curious. For me, this, this whole journey of researching, digging into the Peace Prize and the history started in 2009 when they gave the Peace Prize to Barack Obama. Because I remember that it was just so curious that they would, because to me, you know, what the little I knew about the last will and the Nobel Peace Prize back then was that it has, you know, it, it was supposed to reward a person on what they had already achieved. And and, and technically wasn't supposed yeah. to reward a person who achieved something in the last year. Yeah, in the last year. That that they they hardly ever in any category, um, they never do take it. Into, yeah. <laughs> it's more of a it's more more often it's a sort of a, a lifetime reward mm. for every and for all the good that you've done in and you know in your life. And Barack Obama, I, I remember, and you, and you kind of mentioned this in the, in, or you do mention this in the book, that he almost was embarrassed by it. Like he hadn't even taken the office of the presidency yet, and they were already giving him the Nobel Peace Prize. And there was so much issue, they kind of even had to make a statement that this is for the hope of what he can do and what he represents as yeah. opposed to what he's done. Yeah. That's what they said afterwards, yeah. you know, later on. But in the announcement, when they announced the Peace Prize, they actually said that, you know, it's for, for all the good that, you know, he had done. But then uh, at the press conference, I remember there were an American journalist asking, so what specifically has he done in the previous year since he has only been president for, for, for roughly eight months when he was announced the winner and when he was nominated for the prize, he had been president for, I think, less than two weeks. Mm. And so I think it's very hard for a U.S. president ultimately to get a lifetime peace achievement award because you know, yeah. the U S has basically been at war since forever. And that means the president has to make decisions where civilians die. And, yeah. and, you know, some presidents make worse decisions than others. And you could argue, maybe it's always a bad decision when civilians die, but like, do you think people, I mean, and this is not really a political discussion, like Barack Obama sent more troops here or there, or maybe pulled troops yeah. out from other places, but it's not like he ended a war and it's not like he brought any additional peace more or less than any other U.S. president. Yeah. I mean, maybe less than, less war than W who started a bunch of wars, but yeah. you know, what happened? Do you think he feels that he deserved it or do you think 
the Peace Prize, they regret it a little bit or I'm not, and again, I'm not saying anything bad about him. It's just that clearly he was involved in a lot of wars like any president. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the, the, what's so interesting and what I found when I started digging into it is that, you know, and when at the press conference, when they announced the prize to Obama, the reward to Obama, they, uh, the, the chairman finally said, you know, when pressed for, for answers, he said, we want to send a signal to the world. So that was why they gave. So I was wondering, so, okay, oh, so what is the signal? And then as I was digging into it, I found all these political motivations um, behind, uh, you know, many of the rewards, not, not all of them, of course, some of them are, are, are good and in line with what Alfred Nobel wanted, but just a lot of them are politically motivated. And the Obama prize, which was actually a last, the last in a row of prizes that were not given to people because they deserved it, but actually as a slap in the face of George W. Bush and his administration. Mm. And what really surprised me was the arrogance of the committee because they even, they're so arrogant. They think that they can do whatever they want and that nobody is supervising them, uh, that they can just do whatever they want. And they, and they even say this as justification for some of the awards that this is, you know, this, the prize this year. And it started in, this started in 2001, uh, right after George W declared war on terrorism and decided to go to war on terrorism without first going through the UN. So that year they gave the peace prize to the UN and Kofi Annan, who had strongly uh, given his opinion against US going to war um, without, you know, without first, you know, asking and, and, and going through the UN. The, in 2002, they gave the award to um, President, you know, President Carter, Jimmy Carter. And that year they actually said it at the, at the peace prize ceremony that this year, of course, uh, Jimmy Carter deserves the prize, but that's not why we're giving it to him. We're giving it to him as uh, they called it a, a kick in the leg, which is directly translated from Norwegian. And it means a slap in the face. They gave it as a slap in the face to George W. Bush and uh, his administration for going to war against terrorism without first, you know, asking or going to the UN. I mean, there's a lot to unpack here because you have a lot yeah. of stuff in here too about the UN. Like the UN yeah. has all these quote unquote peacekeeping services, but yeah. why didn't they stop? And I always wonder this, everybody cares about what's happening in the Middle East. And of course that's important, but why didn't anybody lift a finger to stop the Rwandan genocide? Everybody knew it was happening. The UN peacekeeping officers were right there. The troops were right there and they were causing part of the problem. Like, like, yes. and then how does the UN win the, everybody knew this and that was in 1993 or 94. Why did the UN yep. ever win the Nobel Peace Prize? It's, it's a great question. And uh, Kofi Annan was actually in charge of, of Rwanda and, you know, the, the, the commission in Rwanda when the, when, you know, during the, during the, the genocide. And he has later apologized. He, he did apologize because he didn't report or he didn't take seriously the reports that he received about the possibility of a genocide. And so had but he put how more could he pressure not, on... Mm. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but how could he not just know that this was happening? Like we would know if something like that was happening in, in our country. You would know, I would know, we would all know. Yeah. It's, you know, it, and, and again, I think uh, politics enter the, the equation um, about uh, sort of an unwillingness to you know, France had interests in, in Rwanda. And actually, I, I believe uh, the French government is now, uh, is officially apologizing for their part in the genocide because they were actually helping. I mean, it was uh, so horrible though. Yeah. How could, you can't even, I mean, maybe they yeah. feel uh, apologies uh, protect them from, from judgment, but it just doesn't like that was no. one of the most horrible events yeah. in history among yeah. many that were, that were rewarded the Nobel peace prize. And, yeah. and these people, I, I, and I particularly blame Kofi Annan because he must, his, his forces were right there yeah. helping yeah. in some cases. Yeah. 
He he absolutely knew. So either they and I don't want to accuse him of anything, but either they paid him off or he was he knew he would be secretary general of the UN because he turned away somehow. I don't know. Yeah. I also think it has to do with some of the the you know sort of the unsuccessful UN um uh, commissions in other countries like Somalia and and uh, a couple of other places as well where you know the the conflict just lasted for years and years and years and, co- and costing uh just you know so much money and the you know the member countries were, were kind of fed up of all these conflicts where the UN uh, were unsuccessful in in uh, in stopping. So it, there was um, it's not only Kofi Annan, but I think it was also a, on the part of of the member member countries uh, in the you know the Security Council an unwillingness to okay should we should we get in you know involved in in a, yet another conflict that will just drain our resources and not lead to anything so i think it has to do with that as well do you think the un do you think their peacekeeping services uh whatever you call them their peacekeeping troops do you think they ever kept the peace anywhere and i, I i'm not asking this sarcastically i honestly don't know yeah yeah i do think they have uh done a good job sometimes mm-hmm. But then again, the peacekeeping troops are only as good as the, you know, as the people that each country send. So when they, when these troops, you know, these people go to these foreign countries and they start, you know, abusing children and traffic women and 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 do drugs and and all these, you know, horrific things that happens. Uh, then, then for sure they're not uh, doing their job, and it's it's difficult because the UN is not a country, so there is not one uh, institution in charge of all these troops. It's really there are they are managed by by each country sending them. Oh, I didn't so know it's, that. It's a very yeah, it's very complicated. You know, the other thing in this 2002 or three award is arguably Jimmy Carter, whether or not people like him as a president, I mean, there's a lot of factors towards being a president, but he did this enormous thing, bring Israel and for the first time, a Muslim country, Egypt together, Sadat and Begin. And, you know, as you mentioned in the book, he kind of deserved it then, but they forgot to apply for him until like the day after the deadline. It's like applying to college or something, applying for the Nobel Peace Prize. And so do you think, who do you, other than Carter or, or maybe include Carter, but what president in the United States you think ever deserved the Nobel Peace Prize? That is a, you know, I don't, I'm not actually sure that any of them, um, would have deserved the Peace Prize on their own, um, I believe. You know what I what I, and what I read in, in my book as well is that they tend to reward American presidents throughout history, and this is from the beginning of you know from the very uh, first awards. To it's 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 in the interest of the Norwegian government and Norwegian foreign policy as a you know strengthening ties with the United States. Um, you know, as Norway was leaving Sweden and becoming independent, you know, way back, you know, in the at the very beginning, um, you know, we see that Norway is trying to strengthen, trying to become this this stronger state, and is you know, of course, afraid that they will be, uh, you know, forced to 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 uh, to be governed by Denmark or Sweden um, again. And so they are seeking uh, West and they're seeking to the UK and the United States. Um, so there's a, a rewards going to the US uh, solely for that reason. So I get that with the, they you know, everybody wants the US to like them. US has the most money. And yeah. if we keep giving the president the Nobel Peace Prize, we'll get more money from them. It's like an economic thing. But what's the story with this Myanmar woman who basically was peaceful and now leads a genocide? Well, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, she actually deserved the prize when she was uh, rewarded, I believe it was in 1991. 
She uh, was then a prisoner of Myanmar, and she was standing for 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 democracy. She was uh, fighting through peaceful means, and uh, so she was she was absolutely um, worthy uh, a worthy winner winner back then. But then uh, when things turned around and she was able to um, to lead Myanmar because the the military uh, you know basically gave way to to try democracy then she turned around and she completely um, almost forgot why she what was she was fighting for in the first place and she allowed um, you know, her, her, you know, and it also believed that maybe it should did, you know, she did allow this genocide against the, the Rohingya, the, the Muslim Rohingyas, so that she would, you know, be reelected in, you know, last year in 2020 and that the, the, and that the military also would allow her to continue being in power. So there was definitely a power game there, but of course, you know, that's, those are, these are just excuses, you know, for allowing genocide to happen. But what's curious is that the Nobel Peace Prize Committee hasn't, even if they didn't make a mistake back in 1991 when they first rewarded her, they haven't rescinded the prize as all the other, you know, she she won numerous prizes uh, from Amnesty International and I believe also the, the, the US uh, Congress Freedom Prize. And all of these prizes have been rescinded. But the Nobel Peace Prize, the committee, are refusing to even discuss the matter, and they have just said, you know, for other prizes as well, that they they will never rescind the prize. Uh, I wonder why, because prize. that really shows influence when you could yeah. have the threat of rescinding a prize. I mean, not that people will pay attention to that necessarily, but they might a little bit, and it might bring awareness to what's happening right now in places like yeah. Myanmar. I only use that as an example, but you give many stories in the book uh, similar yeah. to that. Well, and one area where it's very interesting, I wasn't sure if I agreed with you or not, but, uh, Malala obviously is a very interesting story. You know, yep. uh, maybe describe that story and, and what your focus was on that. So to me, uh, Malala is, is one of the, what I call celebrity prices. And, um, and she, you know, she, was uh, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize already in 2013. She didn't receive it then. And then in 2014, they gave it to her. And I think there was a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure and a lot of nominations for her to win the Nobel Peace Prize. And it was an, so it was a popular prize to give. Malala, you know, we're all, the whole world, we were so touched by her story. And uh, they do that, the committee does that Quite often, it's like actually. a feel-good prize. It's a feel-good prize, exactly. And uh, you know, and first of all, her prize, what she, her work is, is is human rights, standing up for women's rights and girls' rights for education uh, worldwide. That actually falls outside of the scope of Alfred Nobel's last will. So they have actually just expanded the scope of the of the will of the last will without you know without asking anyone's permission, without going through proper legal channels. And, and this so, is where I was unsure, mm -hmm. like maybe describe yeah. what, what is the, the scope of, you know, what was Alfred Nobel's intention? Because I think she's on the border a little bit. Although yeah. I agree that I might not call it a celebrity prize, but I would call it a symbolic prize because yeah. she wasn't, she's not an actual leader of anything to, to, to have the influence to really drive peace. But symbolically she exposed in a very, unfortunately, very real personal way, the plight of women in some of these countries and that, yeah. that has sort of is related to peace, you know, it deals with a significant part of the population, 50% yeah. of the world. Yeah. So. And I agree with you. They, they, I believe that the definition in Alfred Nobel's will should be expanded, uh, you know, to reflect our society today, because a lot of things have happened in the past uh, 125 years. Um, but, but the problem is that the committee, we never know what they're going to decide. Mm. There's no, there's no definition that we know of, of what it seems to, it seems to be just a sort of a, sometimes on a whim that, oh, this year, uh, we think this is a good cause. So we'll just call it peace. 
You know, that's what it seems like sometimes. But what they, what the, so what the Alfred Nobel wrote at his last will was that the winner shall be a champion of peace, having done the best work for fraternity between nations, the abolition or reduction of standing armies, and finally, for the holding and promotion of peace congresses. So we have, um, so we have basically three elements here. We have work, you know, for for the brotherhood between nations. Um, the second one is the abolition or reduction of standing armies, and and finally, holding or promotion of peace congresses. Peace congresses are basically, you know, where people meet. Uh, you know, uh, to demonstrate or to discuss uh, and and find you know peaceful means. Um, Does it have to be all three? Doesn't it, it? Well, that's the thing. It's it, that also is uh, up for discussion. Because only a, like a, only a political leader will reduce armies, really, or a military leader, yeah. I guess. Uh, although, I guess someone who calls for the reduction of violence yeah. could be so Malala that in that sense yeah. called mm -hmm. for the reduction of violence um and there certainly there were congress you know meetings and conference conferences yeah. that dealt with yeah. her specific issues so that's why i yeah. feel like she's a little on the border like who do you think is the person who least deserved it who got it oh oh but also sometimes people who don't really deserve it do satisfy those three conditions like you talked about henry kissinger and i agreed yeah. with your stance that he didn't deserve it. I mean, he drastically increased for a long time yeah. troops in Vietnam and, and so on. But at the end of his term, particularly under Ford, they ended the Vietnam War. And so you can yeah. argue yeah. He, he changed or maybe he didn't change really, but he did satisfy those conditions. Yeah. Well, the, the, what under Ford, that was after he received it. You know? ah, okay. so, so it was kind of a little, little late uh, for the peace price anyway. But uh, but yes, I do I do agree with you. Um, I think you know there's definitely the the Kissinger uh, Prize, and Kissinger shared that year's prize in 1973 with the leader of uh, North Vietnam, uh, Lo Duc Tho, and he Lo Duc Tho actually refused to uh, receive it hmm. because he and he and rightly so. He basically uh, said, "I'm a bloodthirsty tyrant." <laughs> There's, there's still no, not peace in our region. So why are we receiving the peace prize? You know, the United States was carpet bombing uh, Vietnam and, and that region, you know, while uh, they were announcing the, the, the prize that year. And that was not a secret. So it's, it's, it's curious. And so Lodokto, he actually refused to receive it. Um, so I think that, that year is definitely um, uh, egregious. I also well, were they trying the, to Were they trying to maybe bring them together on the Norwegian stage to say, hey, now you guys are here, let's talk. You think that was trying to, to influence rather than reward? Not that year. Mm -hmm. That year, it was definitely, uh, you know, during the Cold War, uh, 1973, Norway feeling threatened by, by Russia and wanting to, uh, you know, stay close with the US. Mm. Got it. So that was, yeah. That was uh, was definitely the motivation that year. In um, in nineteen ninety four, uh, it's an interesting prize also to you know for the Oslo that was given for the Oslo Accords between Israel and Palestine, and um, they gave it to Yasser Arafat, uh, Yitzhak Rabin, and Shimon Peres, and. Um, None of them can qualify as peace champions, according to Alfred Nobel's last will. But I think perhaps, you know, Yasser Arafat is perhaps the least, you know, he basically was a terrorist and he didn't even, you know, it, the peace prize didn't even make him um, more peaceful. I mean, he showed up at the at the peace prize ceremony. He was armed, which is illegal in Norway. So they had to remove his gun. Um, <laughs> it's so funny showing up. It's like a sitcom showing up for the, the Nobel Peace Prize with guns. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What if you yeah. had to like shoot people in the audience? Like, what would have? <laughs> hey, I'm here for the Peace Prize. Get out of my way! And he takes out his yeah. gun. <laughs> <laughs> so that one, another one, another prize that I find egregious. But this might be, uh, you know, this this is maybe just my opinion. But um, in 2006, they gave the Peace Prize to uh, Muhammad Yunus for his uh, oh, yeah, that was an founder of microcredit. Yeah. I yeah. always thought 
I always thought it was amazing what he did, but you, you mentioned in that uh, chapter that very few people actually benefit from the, the, so Muhammad Yunus, for people who don't know, um, kind of developed this concept in Africa of microfinance, giving tiny loans, uh, in, let's say to, you know, war-torn, widowed mm. women who are starting businesses, giving these micro loans to help them start their businesses and then they would pay them back. And uh, it didn't really, you were pointing out, it didn't really work out. Yeah, what, what they have found, uh, you know, I think it looked really good in the beginning, in the first few years. And then when they started uh, looking into what was really happening to the people, you know, in the years following, when after they had been given these microloans, is that they found that these people were not um, any better off, most of them. Uh, they were actually worse off because now they uh, were caught in this uh, debt trap and they had to go to loan sharks to be able to repay uh, the, their microloans. And then they were, you know, caught, you know, with these, you know, loan sharks who demanded, you know, 100%. Uh, uh, like interest a year. Interest, exactly. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, and, and, and what, we, what we saw in, in several regions were uh, suicide epidemics, you know, where people, where women especially, and it's just you know, horrifying uh, learning about it, how women would take their, you know, small kids and, and drown themselves and, and, and jump mm. off a cliff. And, and, and often even, um, even, you know, they were kind of bullied even to take their own lives or to flee the, the town. Because the way, the, the way these microloans work is that because they don't have any collateral, the banks, so what they do is that they have these groups of people coming together and they take up the loan together. So if one of these, let's say five people, five women come together, take up a loan, um, each get, you know, each person get their money. And then if one of these women can't pay her weekly, uh, her weekly, um, interest to the bank, then the rest of the group, the four other people are responsible for paying for her. Mm. So it, 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 it creates this enormous pressure, um, social pressure on people to repay their loans, even if they can't. And that's why they go to these loan sharks. And, you know, and even um, there are stories about how the employees of, of Grameen Bank, which, which is the bank of, of Muhammad Yunus, how the employees there even, you know, they were yelling and screaming at these poor people who couldn't repay their weekly um, interests, you know, in, in weekly parts and, and just uh, basically bullying them into committing suicide, uh, encouraging them even to commit suicide. So it's, it's really why, just why would they horrendous. do that? Like, did they, did they have life insurance on everybody they lent money to or? They also had life insurance. Well, they had, well, they actually forced people when they took up loans to to also have all these sort of life insurance, you know, and all the other insurances. So the the loans ended up costing them a lot more than than um, than it says on on the initial paper. Yeah, and a lot of these people, a lot of these women that take up these loans, they don't even know how to read. So it's it's really just. Uh, you know, unfair conditions and, uh, as, as Muhammad Yunus yeah. ever spoken about this? He has never spoken about this. No. Uh, and it's, uh, he's, uh, there was this, uh, Norwegian, um, television, uh, program that did some research and they tried to interview him, but he refused to comment. So what, what do you uh, think that is? Yeah. Like people, obviously they, they want to protect the reputation, yeah. but it's okay to have a reputation of admitting you're wrong, but maybe that's a different type of reputation. Like some people will applaud that and others will say, ah, you were wrong once, so we hate you forever. Yeah. So, but he could have maybe made a difference by, or he could still do it by admitting he's wrong or maybe creating improvements to this. Although I don't know, you know Absolutely. how you do that. Yeah, and I think that applies to all leaders and, and all, you know, winners of Nobel Prizes and, and you know, any precedents or leaders uh, anywhere to you know, we're, we're all just human and we make mistakes. And if you can own your mistake and apologize, then I think we are prone to forgive. I mean, I know I am. Um, I much rather 
have uh, the Norwegian prime minister apologize for mistakes that she has made, that will increase my trust in her. When they don't apologize, when they don't take responsibility and own their mistakes, that's when trust erodes. That's when we, you know, and that creates a lot of uh, problems and people uh, who then go elsewhere for information and start, you know, looking into conspiracy theories and, and, and other things and extremism. Yeah. yeah. Good point. Like, uh, they, cause they lose trust in this. Yeah. I mean, the Nobel prize is a very respected institution, maybe the most respected institution on the planet. Like if you win the Nobel prize in physics, that's your whole career, your whole industry, you're at the top, you're the alpha male of an entire industry. <laughs> or alpha yeah. female or whatever. Yeah. And, but the thing is the peace prize, there's more at stake because yeah, as you mentioned, it's, you have you reduced armies? Have you created peace? Whereas like, let's say physics, not to downplay innovations in physics, but pretty much every physicist is wrong by proven wrong by future science. And, and it's fine. Like that's what science is, is being yeah. skeptical of the last generation, whether it was last year or 20 years ago, or like, like Albert Einstein was wrong. He didn't develop the final theory of physics. Quantum mechanics came 20 years later. And then all of those people might be proven wrong at some point. Cause there was a lot of Nobel physics yeah. prizes for that. So here's a question. Let's say, let's say the committee was uh, for the Nobel peace prize was just you and me. Who would you mm. nominate? I'm going to think of a nomination. Who? Uh, um, Oh, I have a good one. Oh, you have a good one? Yeah, yeah I'll, tell, I'll tell mine first. So the, the remember Tiananmen Square? Remember the photo of the guy standing in front of the tank? I feel like, and then that photograph yeah. was portrayed yeah. around the world yeah. and yeah. that put a lot of pressure on China to stop the killing that yeah. was happening there. Now yeah. he didn't reduce, he might've, you could even argue he reduced armies. So I'm gonna throw him out there. Yeah, uh, another good one. That's a good one. Uh, another good one is Cora Weiss. Cora Weiss is this woman who started uh, Women Strike for Peace. She has been uh, leading peace movements uh, since the early 1960s, um, worldwide, but especially in the US. And um, she is, uh, you know, she actually fulfills all of three, all three of Alfred Nobel's conditions um, in his last will. And she's been nominated four times for the Nobel Peace Prize. I believe even five times, wow. uh, what we know, five times she's been nominated. Uh, and she's still alive and kicking and she's still, you know, working uh, for peace through education, through, you know, all sorts of, you know, she's she's just a, a wonderful human being and, and uh, such a worthy winner. Uh, but for, for some reason, she's she doesn't bring, and that's where, that's where I think that this, this, this celebrity thing also comes to mind because she's, she's she's not this she's not this glamorous winner she's not Malala who would bring all this fame and celebrity onto the Nobel Peace Prize and bind to Norway through the reward. There also um, there's this Japanese Buddhist leader called Daisaku Ikeda. I may be misspelling his name, but he oh, yeah. has you know uh, been a peace builder and writer and. Uh, founded peace research institutions uh, around the world and and just and really it tries to inspire to to peace through um, education and uh, empathy really empathy and compassion and uh, I think when you're when you're kind of like a silent leader like that like Cora wise as well you kind of you just don't get the attention of the committee also, especially if they have uh, a political agenda, someone who suits their uh, their needs, then they're not going to give it to you for sure. Yeah, he. I'm um, quickly perusing him. He looks he looks definitely interesting. You know, there's um. Have you ever heard of this organization, Women for Women International? Uh, no. So it's basically a charity uh, where, as opposed to what Muhammad Yunus does, they. Yeah distribute direct aid to women who are widowed in wars like the Iran, Iraq war and other Middle Eastern wars, Afghanistan, Bosnia oh, yeah. and so on. And it was, it was founded by a husband and wife team. And they were, the, the wife was a survivor of the Iran, Iraq war. And I always think that's an, an interesting one that because, you know, and, and does it directly reduce armies and create peace? There's a saying, you know, but 
if a country has two borders, I mean, if a country borders each other, then either bullets or money will go over those borders. <laughs> so, so if you create yeah. kind of uh, an economy that reduces war, it, it creates yeah. more peace. And so I, I think that organization is, is always interesting. But okay, yeah, so these, that's really interesting. These yeah. are a lot of names that nobody knows. I wonder if there's kind of like a famous person who we could nominate in, in, in the Uni James Peace Prize. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let me, while I'm thinking about that, um, I just want to add to what we, what we said earlier about this, this whole trust issue in leaders and why it's so important that the Nobel Peace Prize, um, makes, you know, makes good choices because the Peace Prize winners are, you know, they become these role models for us, right? Or at, at least they, 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 they could, or they're supposed to be the beacon of hope of, of leadership that we can aspire to. And um, I think we, you know, we see that, especially in the U.S., what's happening, you know, last year with the election and also during COVID, when people don't trust the government, when people don't trust their leaders, they, you know, they go to other sources and it's easy to fall into a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories and even, you know, going as far as extremism. And I believe this distrust in leadership um, that we see around the you know around the globe, not only in the U.S. You know, we we saw it in in Hong Kong uh, with the riots, mm. you know, still I believe going on there, but especially before COVID in France, you know, the the, the yellow vest movement there that was shut down uh, by by pretty much by 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 COVID, but you know all this distrust around the world. And that creates a lot of um, social isolation, a lot of uh, loneliness. And uh, loneliness is something that I've actually studied and looked into for a few years now uh, when I was researching this other book that I wrote um, called The Mystery of the Lone Wolf Killer. And back, ah, in, back, in, I, yeah, back I in 2011. I have that book. And do you say in that, uh, do I remember correctly, something like 40% of the world suffers from loneliness. There's some like huge number of people yeah. who are lonely. Yeah. That was before the pandemic, you know, in the U.S., uh, more than 40% uh, in the U.S., and which which basically is applies also to at least, you know, the West, Western world. But now coming out of the pandemic, we're, we're more like, it's more up to 60%, according to the most recent, um, uh, research, uh, recent numbers. And that is just really, uh, first of all, crazy, not surprising either with the, you know, with the lockdown and, and uh, you know, everything, you know, shutting down and we're not able to be social. But it's also really scary because when people are lonely, first of all, it's, it, it's damaging to our health, our mental health and our physical health. Um, and also it makes us dangerous not only to our, ourselves because of the increased risk of suicide, but it makes us dangerous to others. And just coming out of, you know, just these first few months of 2021 in the U.S., we've seen a rapid increase of mass shootings in the U.S. And I yeah. believe there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a co correlation there because when I studied these mass, um, mass killers, I started studying them in, in 2011, what I found was that all of them, no matter where they came from, what their upbringing, their education, didn't matter. All of them suffered from loneliness, feeling rejected, excluded from society, uh, distrusting leadership, just, you know, and, and, and really searching for belonging. And they, these lone wolves, what happens to them is that they can't really connect even with extremist groups because they're rejected even there. So they go out on their own and then they sort of adopt this hateful ideology, this extremism. Um, so I'm sorry, I'm going off on a rant here, but it's just really close to my well, heart because I believe, yeah. It's interesting because like what, if you if you find yourself lonely yeah. and what are steps you can do to not be lonely? Because I imagine loneliness is a problem that can be solved, but maybe people yeah. get in this dark cave where they don't have enough light to see their way out of the cave. Yeah. It's important, first of all, to know what loneliness is and what it isn't. So we can be lonely when we're with other other people. We, you know, we're so used to thinking of loneliness as, as something that 
is when we are physically uh, separated from other people um, or, you know, the elderly, for instance. But that's just not true. And most of the people who are lonely today are actually younger. And so that's really scary. And so, you know, we can have, you know, there are three dimensions of connection that we all need. And so the first one is the, the intimate or emotional connection. And loneliness in this area is, is, is uh, the longing for um, a partner or typically a spouse. And then the second um, dimension is the relational connection. That is loneliness in this area is the yearning for quality friendships. And then we have the collective connection. And this is where I believe that, you know, the peace price comes in and has uh, an impact. Loneliness here looks like the hunger for a network community or a culture even where you mm. feel that you have a sense of purpose and, and the same interests. So this is, this is where we are in our world today, that loneliness here is creating a lot of polarization and danger. Yeah, because I guess if you're not getting the intimate loneliness or yeah. the friendships, you sign up for the group. And yeah. like, whether it's red or blue or yeah. some other faction, uh, and you know, you, you, you go kind of to the, the easiest common denominator to solve your loneliness. It's like a natural thing. Yeah. And I wonder, yeah. I, I guess, on the, A, on the one hand, people have to recognize that it's in themselves. They might not feel lonely because they're going to all these rallies and everyone's having a great time. But yeah. I guess it's important to be aware of it, why you might be doing something. Well, you know, and I guess it's related to addiction. Like, yeah. you know, alcohol, alcoholism is a form of, you know, collective community um, yeah. if you're feeling lonely in other areas of your life. So it's it's interesting. Absolutely. Maybe Mark Zuckerberg should get the Nobel Peace Prize because Facebook's connected certainly a billion people or two, that or maybe is, disconnected that is them. True. Although you know Facebook has you know been used for a lot of atrocities as well. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it's it's a it's a two faced uh, matter. But I think you know back to what you asked before, like what can you do? I, th I think you know for for so for anyone. Um, who are struggling maybe with, you know, feeling lonely or the yearning for, for, for any, you know, sort of type of connection in these, these three areas. Um, it's important to know that when we say that we're lonely, what we're really saying is that we don't feel that we are worthy of love and connection. Hmm. And so that unworthiness is important to become aware of and also to, to start to work on increasing our self-worth. And, you know, that can be done through many, I mean, many things that, I mean, I, the reason also why I'm so uh, fascinated by loneliness is because it's been my journey, my struggle in my life. I mean, you know, one of the reasons that I actually, well, the main, main reason why I left Norway as a young woman was because I didn't feel that I belonged in my culture, in my society, I felt always felt that I was very different and that I wasn't allowed to be who I was and to have the opinions um, that I had. And so I felt, so I was searching for a place where I could felt, feel free to be myself and also accepted and recognized and sort of feel, create a sense of belonging there. And, and much later, of course, I, you know, sort of discovered you know, the hard way that um, unless I increased my self-worth, <laughs> then I would never feel that belonging because that belonging starts with uh, with ourselves first. So however, you know, I, I use yoga a lot, you know, meditation, um, also learning to set boundaries and just by mm. little by little, um, respecting myself, asking myself in a journal every, every morning, like, how can I respect myself a little more today? You know, setting boundaries and, and that's a good idea to, add, to yeah, do it in increments. Right? Like how, what's yeah. a, what's a, what's one way, what's one small way someone can respect themselves a little more. One of my favorite questions is, you know, I ask myself and this might sound silly, but I ask myself in my journal every morning, it's like, how can I not only respect myself, but how can I love myself more today? And you know, whatever comes up, I write it down. And it might be that, okay, well, today I need to just lie down for half an hour and not do anything. <laughs> or yeah, maybe I need to go for a walk in nature, or, you know, maybe I need to uh, 
pet my dog or, or have a cup of coffee and not, not drive myself so hard. You know, it can be little things like that. It doesn't have to be huge. You should things. write a book of those things. Like I all actually, the techniques. I actually, yeah, I actually uh, am. And I'm not only writing a, uh, a book about it. Um, I actually have written a book uh, that is about that. It is also my sort of my personal journey. But what I'm doing right now is that I'm creating this online course because you know, coming out of the pandemic and knowing that so many people are struggling with loneliness and there's all, there's all this shame around loneliness, right? So, because yeah. we don't want to talk about it. I mean, it took me forever to, to admit that I, that I felt lonely because to me, that was, I was such a failure at social connection, you know, and uh, it made me feel like that. So it's only been very recent that I, that I talk about it. But I do think it's important. And I do think it's important for me. It's, it's, a, it's a way for me to getting over my shame of feeling lonely um, and also to contribute, to do something to prevent, to try to prevent these mass shootings, to try to help um, other people feel less lonely and make them feel like, okay, we can be part of something. We can be part of something that isn't extremism or a conspiracy theory. We can be part of something just being on a human level, finding, okay, whatever we have in common, or even if we have don't have anything on the surface in common, let's get to know each other and, and build relationships. So uh, I'm, I'm creating this um, online course that I want to, because I want to, I mean, I do talk about, I do, I do, you know, public speaking and that sort of thing and write books but I wanted to reach more people. So I decided to create this course because that's something that even if we feel ashamed, we can do it you know, at home in our, in our living room and nobody needs to know that we're doing this course. <laughs> and then um, from there, uh, you know, enter into a community on Facebook or, or whatnot. But I was inspired to, um, to, to create this course actually by your book, Skip the Line, because you know oh, I was reading it and it was such a, such a great book. I absolutely loved it because not only is it good for you know, business and, and, and entrepreneurs like me, it's a, it's a book about life and how to, how to live a better life, you know, in my opinion. So it really um, touched me, your book. Oh, and I, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Yeah. Now I feel less lonely. Me. Exactly, exactly. Feel less lonely. And also, you know, writing about your journey and how you were, you know, struggling, struggling with depression and feeling that your, your, your friends, you know, left you every time you went bankrupt, you know, and this, I think we all go through on some level, uh, periods where we feel alone and lonely and we, we, um, wish we had support and we wish we felt worthy of love and connection. And so I wanted to do that. So I'm creating this course and I have this, um, have this free, free course that I'm giving out first because it's a smaller one. What's, uh, what's, uh, your, what's the website? So the, my website is uh, www.andmyname. So it's Uni Turretini. I'm going to spell that because it's long. <laughs> it's, so it's U-N-N-I-T-U-R-R-E-T-T-I-N-I dot com so it will be it will be there to to download for anyone who who is interested and you know oh yeah and to and they and hopefully they can share it too with with you know whoever they feel could need it so yeah, yeah this so is, that's this is great i'm gonna i'm gonna check this out and um and once again uni thank you so much also i i I really love the book, Betraying the Noble. There's so many great stories. We, we went over like one-tenth of them, but really yeah. interesting stories about the history of the past century and what peace is and who got yeah. these awards and why there, some were wrong and how horrible some of these things were. And I, I appreciate how where this conversation ended up with this discussion of loneliness. Like, When do you think your course will come out? It will be, uh, so the, the, the smaller one is, is, is ready now. Um, and then the bigger one, hopefully in a couple of weeks. So yeah, Excellent. so that will be, yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, and just to circle back to, I think it has to, you know, why the Nobel Peace Prize matter is if, if they can select winners that are not motivated by the political situation mm. of Norway or uh, some other whim, 
uh, and instead do the job they're supposed to do and really, um, you know, just continue Alfred Nobel's, his wish for, you know, unity, freedom, uh, and, and, and connection, uh, and, 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 and then creating this, this, um, this base, this, uh, foundation for a more peaceful world. Then I think also this loneliness, uh, epidemic that we're seeing will, will also decrease and yeah, people will feel more, you know, that they belong in our society, in our culture. Right. Because it's such a, an important institution. I mean, it's evolved that way that yeah. if you lose trust in it, then that's kind of the first step towards that slippery slope towards extremism, where you stop yeah. trusting more and more institutions that you were originally taught to trust. I mean, that's yeah. why someone like Bob Dylan, I mean, I know it's a different prize, but he doesn't show up for the Nobel prize uh, in literature because yeah. he just doesn't trust the institution anymore. Yeah. And there's a exactly. lot of people like him who for them, it's not like a big thing anymore than the Nobel peace prize or the Nobel prize in literature or whatever. So yeah. it's, it's definitely an important topic, like how these institutions rise, rise up, but always keeping in mind that they have, many of them have their own internal agendas and you're right. Yeah. That could be related to the alienation of towards society as a whole. So yeah. it's all, Absolutely. it is all connected. And I do believe it's, it's possible to write this ship, at least of the Nobel Peace Prize. I do believe so. I mean, and, and to do that, they need to stop putting politicians on the committee. I mean, the committee should not be <laughs> a should committee stop of- awarding of, politicians, probably. Right, and, you know, and also probably stop uh, rewarding politicians. And, and also this secrecy, this whole, you know, like secrecy around the Nobel Peace Prize that, you know, they, they're not supposed to discuss anything you know, any of the process, like, we don't know, like, we, we don't even know who's nominated unless it's leaked, you know, uh, to the press by the people nom nominating. And so, you know, we, in today's world, today's leadership and culture, we need transparency, right? So I think, you know, I think there are simple, simple steps that yeah. the committee can take, right? And also, let's define peace. What is peace? What is, what, what comes in under, what kind of work is, is can fall under the peace umbrella. I think it's important to, to, that we all know. But you know, I've lost faith in the institution. We'll, we'll see what happens, yeah. but I'm glad <laughs> at the very least your book provides a lot of this transparency, even though it's probably not approved by them, of course, but yeah, no. <laughs> at least shedding light on the issue might make them more aware and take some of your suggestions. I, I hope I so. Hope so. Well, once again, Uni Turretini, that's T-U-R-R-E-T-T-I-N-I. -I. I also made the mistake com. of only having one T when it should have been two Ts at the teeny. Yeah, and there's a lot of double consonants there. Yeah. Yeah. So U-N-N-I-T-U-R-R-E-T-T-I-N-I. -T -T -I -I yeah, three com. double consonants in your whole name. That's That could be a record. <laughs> yeah. And the book is, well, the forward is by Michael Nobel, and the yep. book is called Betraying the Nobel. The Secrets and Corruption Behind the Nobel Peace Prize. And I'm also fascinated by your work on loneliness and looking forward to the course. And your website again is www.uniturratini. Let me see, if I can't spell your name, I'm just gonna try on Google. I'm gonna just type yeah. uni, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna do the uh, double T's. I think, you'll, I think you'll still find me because I'm the only one in the world with my name. So you'll probably still land on me. You know, I did U-N-I-T-U-R-E-T-I-N-I, -I -I, and I don't get you, but maybe oh. if I do two N's, let's do that. Yes, then I then I get you right away. Okay, cool. The two N's are critical. The two N's are critical, Because yes. there's too many things, I guess, <laughs> like uni means one. So there's too many things yeah. with that. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay, well, thanks once again for coming on the podcast. Such an interesting discussion. And I encourage people to read the book because there's a lot more stories and it's just fascinating what has gone into this prize. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on again to talk about loneliness with your new course. Thank you so much for having me, James. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, same here.